indeed, all thy works shall praise thy name. And uh, we're thankful to our worship team and Pastor Bobby for leading us as all of God's works praise his name this Sunday morning. Greetings to you. My name is Wayne Park. I serve as the lead pastor here at Woven. It's my privilege to encourage our congregation Sunday after Sunday and to hopefully be a source of hope, inspiration, challenge, um, encouragement. And that's my heart's desire. We've been in a series called Sanctifying Monday to Friday. Sanctifying Monday to Friday where we're talking about spirituality on the one hand, but we're also talking about work, spirituality and work. Oftentimes, the two are seen like oil and water. Why should we try to force spirituality into our work lives? Why do we have to talk about work um, and faith at work? Why can't we just keep the spiritual thing private to Sunday, to the private spheres of life? Why do we have to somehow bring that into all of our lives, Monday to Friday. But what happens as we grow as Christians, as we begin to develop a more uh, nuanced, a more holistic theological perspective, when you read verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when it says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. In view of God's mercy, offer all of your lives to God. When we hear things like that, we begin to say, this is inconsistent. I'm one person on Sunday, but from Monday to Friday, I'm a different person. And there's something not right about that. It just doesn't seem to sit well with me. And we begin to see that my faith must inform all of my life. That spirituality, spirituality must pervade, it must pervade the rest of my life and all of my life. So my hope for this series is to inspire, uh, to challenge, maybe even to provoke us to think about how is my faith informing all of my life? How is my faith not just real and something I practice on Sunday, but how is my faith real and practical Monday to Friday at work? And I hear many stories. The deeper we go into this series, I'm hearing from some of you about how that's difficult. And in your different fields, Sometimes to wear the Christian hat or to appear um, dogmatic or religious, it almost puts a target on your back. How do we live Christianly? How do we live ethically when we go to work, when we go to school, as parents? How do we live Christianly in those spaces is the big question. So in order to talk about work, today I'd like to talk about the opposite of work, Sabbath. Because in order to understand what work is, I believe we have to understand what true rest is as well. If we understand rest in a deeper way, I believe we'll understand a quality of work. After all, if you're working seven days a week without a break, you're work, 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 and you're, or you're studying, studying, studying without a break, you start to kind of compromise. You start to kind of, you find that your, your work life, the quality is beginning to go out because there's a lack of rest. So in order to understand work, we have to understand rest. And that's what I'd like to talk about today in the last talk on Sabbath. I've been talking about Sabbath throughout this series. I've been peppering it in here and there. In the beginning, I started talking about Sabbath from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. 
when God, an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, rested on the seventh day. And so I ask you once again, if you are omnipotent and all-powerful, do you need to rest? No. It's not necessary for God to rest on the seventh day. So why does He rest, if anything, but to show His creation, to show us that we are not God, that we are not omnipotent? God rests on the seventh day not because He says, oh, I created the sun, I created the moon, I created the stars, I created heavens and the earth. I'm tired, I need to rest. No, that's not why He rested. He rested to show us, His creation, that you are not God. And working seven days a week, actually, you're not in control. You don't have all power. We rest seven days a week to remind us that we are not God to remind us that we don't have all control. One of the best prayers I can teach you, and I'll teach it to you right now, and you can repeat this throughout your week as a mantra, is simply this, I have no control. I have no control. I have no control. Lest you think you're in the C-suite, you're at the top of your game, you're, you're a player, you're a mover, but then you have to remind yourself that you have no control. The market can crash. Your health can fail. Something can happen to your marriage. Things can happen and you realize, I have no control. That's why Sabbath is important. It's a reminder that we don't have control. And it's one day we surrender and say to God, you're the one who has control. And then we moved along from Genesis to the Old Testament prophets where they began challenging people saying, you're not resting, you're not resting, you're breaking the fourth commandment, you're not Sabbathing. And Sabbath became something of a protest. You have to protest. That's why if you ever travel to Israel, you'll see that they observe Sabbath citywide. It's a very serious thing. I've never traveled to Israel. (laughs) And then we move into the New Testament where Jesus talks about Sabbath, about the seventh day, and he says, guys, you're going at it all wrong. You're getting really kind of legalistic about it. Really, the spirit of Sabbath, he gets at the spirit of Sabbath, I am Sabbath. He redefines Sabbath in light of himself. Jesus says Sabbath was made for man, not man to serve the rules of the Sabbath. Sabbath, true rest, can be found in me. Today, I'd like to kind of wrap up this little talk about Sabbath. I've been peppering it in. Um, Today I'd like to finish in what I believe is the final culmination, the final development of this theme of Sabbath all throughout Scripture in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm not going to read all of it, um, but I think this is the final stage in the evolution of the idea of Sabbath. Um, I I have friends that are Jewish and sometimes we talk and they are the ones that really observe Sabbath better than anybody else, but I think Our Christian scriptures capture Sabbath in such a beautiful, amazing way. And Hebrews 3 and 4 kind of round it out, I think, in a perfectly, in a perfect way. And I'd like to walk us through. It's a long section, so I'm just going to read passages from those two chapters. But listen carefully with me as I read from chapter 3. Start from chapter 3, and along the way, I'm going to teach three, three types of rest. So if you look in your bulletin, you see the notes. One, two, and three, rest as, rest as, rest as. Three types of rest that the author of Hebrews talks about. And so we begin with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they don't know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is the author of Hebrews here talking about? What is he talking about exactly? This story harkens back to an Old Testament book called, anybody? Exodus. So when he talks about Uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They tested me for 40 years in the wilderness. What happened was in the end, the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, along with Moses, could not enter the promised land. They stayed behind. It was their children, the second generation, that was finally able to cross past over the threshold into the promised land and say, I'm home I'm finally home. After 40 years of wandering, my feet are swollen. I'm tired. Recently, I went up to Dallas. I took a trip up to Dallas. I know we've got some friends visiting from Waco. And um, the thing about, uh, I, I travel a good bit, but when I go up to Dallas, I'm always tired. I always come back exhausted for some reason. I think it's because I'm leaving on I-35. There seems to be constant construction there. And by the time I'm off of I-35 and I'm down here in Houston, there's traffic here in Houston, and what's supposed to be like a four or five hour trip ends up being like eight hours. And I'm always nauseous for some reason, and I'm exhausted. And when I get home, I just want to cross the threshold into my house, sit down, put my feet up on the table, and have somebody cook for me. Gentlemen, husbands, I'm going to tell you a little secret. This is what the president of my denomination told me personally one day in a car ride. When you get home from a long trip, don't say to your wives, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Say, what can I do for you? I'm feeling good. Do you need help in the kitchen? Do you need help with the kids? Don't say, I'm so tired. Anyway, imagine for, the wilderness, imagine for the Israelites in the wilderness for 39 years, they're so tired and they're like, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I just want to put my feet up. I just want to get home. And in the end, having home denied to them. Denied. They forfeited home. They died never getting home. Why? The author says it here, the author of Hebrews, because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief and disobedience. They never arrive home. So what is this first notion of rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about? It's actually a physical location. Listen to this, and that's the fill in the blank. Rest as a physical location. He's talking about the promised land, and he's saying if you, if you want to rest, if you want to rest, Don't fall into the same disobedience that our fathers did in the wilderness. And they forfeited, they forfeited home. Friends, through unbelief, we forfeit home all the time. Maybe you've done something at work, you've compromised in some area, maybe in some area of your life, ethically, you feel it. You come home and you don't feel home. Your mind is restless. You're in your own bed, and yet you can't sleep. Maybe somewhere, somewhere, somehow, through disobedience or unbelief, 
and not trusting in your higher power. You forfeited your own rest. And so the question for reflection under this first heading, fill in the blank, do I want to keep wandering? Do I want to keep walking around in circles? Do I want to just keep walking, wandering in circles because I'm not ready to take that step of obedience or belief that'll cross me into the threshold where I come home? So friends, we're not talking about a physical home here, but we're talking about, in a sense, a mental state. And if you know what it's like to keep wandering and mentally to just not be at rest, not be at home, you're wondering, God, somewhere I'm missing something, somewhere there's an element of unbelief, disobedience, whatever it is, do I want to keep wandering? Friends, the Christian faith, ultimately, the Christian faith ultimately is about coming home. It's about a peace of mind. It's about true rest. So we continue with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, and we see this theme drawn out more. And listen to the author of Hebrews. He says, take care, brethren. Let's all look at that together. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't fall into the same trap they fell into in the wilderness through an evil, unbelieving heart. And then verse 13, but encourage each other. Encourage each other day after day as long as it is still called today. I hope that woven can become a place for you where you are encouraged in your daily choices, where you are Daily encouraging each other. Friends, are you daily encouraging each other? I'm not just a pastor of this church. I was reflecting on it about how I'm encouraged by this congregation. I'm encouraged by you to stand firm in my own faith. I think my wife and I both are encouraged by this church. Woven, whatever it is, is an encouragement. Encourage one another day after day. Day after day, while it is still called today. Don't wait for tomorrow. While it's today, encourage each other so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So he's equating the promised land with, he's equating partaking in Christ with the promised land. If you stay faithful and you stay the course, you partake with Christ, which is the same as entering the promised land, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Stick with me a little bit more here. Verse 19, so we see that the original Hebrews in the wilderness, they couldn't enter the rest because of unbelief. That's what we've established already, correct? They couldn't enter the promised land because they didn't believe. Therefore, we're in chapter 4 now, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, listen to this, let us fear if while a promise remains, the door is still open, you can enter the promised land, it's not too late. The door is still open, you can enter the promised land while a promise remains. Make sure that none of us will fall short of it, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also now listen to this. This is important. Who exactly is the author of Hebrews talking to? 
Anybody know? Hebrews. <laughs> the author of Hebrews is talking to Hebrews, to Jews. These are first century, first generation Christians who were Jewish. And for them, they're starting to follow Jesus and they're saying, we believe, we believe, we believe. But my cousin, my cousin's a rabbi. My cousin, the rabbi, he's telling me there's something wrong with this Jesus stuff. Don't believe anymore. You got you to come back to traditional Judaism. And then we're starting to say, um, I'm not sure if we believe anymore. We're starting to have second thoughts. The Pharisees, the other Jews, they're saying that this is not the way. We're starting to have second thoughts. And what happens is the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish Christians saying, don't give up the fight. He's speaking Hebrew to Hebrew people. He's talking about all of the conventions of the Jewish religion. And he's saying, listen, Jesus, Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better temple. Jesus is Sabbath. Jesus is the promised land. Everything that you're looking for, hold on. Don't give up. Because like our fathers in the wilderness, you'll forfeit the promised land that you're looking for if you give up. So he's talking to Jewish Christians, but the message still speaks to us today. The message speaks to you today. There are many things that pull us away that say, don't believe, give up the fight. Hear the word of Hebrews, don't give up. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, and they being the first generation of Jews. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was united. It was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. We enter this rest. We are the ones who can enter into the promised land. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, right there with that last verse, how many of you got lost? Honestly. I got lost when I read this. What, does this. what are we talking about now? We're talking about the promised land, but now in this last verse, in verse 4 of chapter 4, he starts talking about the seventh day. And this is where I understand that Hebrews is hard to read. Hebrews is hard to read, especially here, because he's talking about rest in three different ways. The first way he talks about rest is what? Physical location. But here he's talking about rest as a seventh day, another day, a day off. And that's the second fill in the blank. First is rest as a physical location. Second is rest as a day off, a day off. So now as he changes, or he talks about rest in a different way, he's redefining rest now as a Sabbath day, a seventh day. This is an important thing. Let's just follow his thought and track with me. The thing about the seventh day is as an institution, the Sabbath was, it was something that kept workaholism in check for thousands of years. The seventh day, I continually, continually believe, is a day not just for rest, but also a day for worship and reflection. Sabbath is for all of us. Sabbath is a gift, not just to keep our own workaholism in check, but to reflect on the other six days. So he starts off talking about this physical place. Now he's talking about how we need to worship on the seventh day. He's talking about how we need to reflect. And this is the question for reflection. Ironically, the question for reflection is, have I even had time to reflect? 
Have I even had time to reflect? I'm in a stage in my own life right now where I have very little time to reflect. I work regular, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week if necessary. And after my job, I have to take the kids to their after-school things. And then at the end of the day, you know, forget Xbox or forget Netflix or forget Redbox. There's, it's time to go to bed or else I'll pay for it in the morning. And the seventh day, who has time to reflect? Who has time to reflect? And yet the need for reflection to set aside a seventh day for reflection is so necessary because unless, listen to this, unless we are carefully and circumspect, unless we're setting aside a seventh day for reflection, it could be forced upon us. Lest we have reflection forced upon us when you're sitting in a hospital bed or you're waiting for a diagnosis or you're experiencing the plunges of some kind of out-of-control, manic, emotional experience. It's moments like that because we haven't reflected on life that we begin to be forced to reflect, that we're forced to reflect. Why? Because we haven't taken the time to reflect. Do you hear what I'm saying? If we don't take that one day out of seven to reflect, it will be forced upon us to reflect. You're familiar with the Titanic, the ship, right? The Titanic ship. When the Titanic went down, it was reported that there were 11 millionaires on board. 11 millionaires on board the ship. People that worked very hard for their money. I'm sure you had 11 workaholics. Of the 11 millionaires, there was one millionaire who for some reason brought $300,000 worth of cash, securities, and jewelry with him on the boat. Bright idea. He brings $300,000 worth of value, you know, of, of money, and he keeps it in a box. But as the ship begins to go down, he, he took three oranges instead. And as the ship began to sink, with those three oranges... He managed to get off the boat and survive while his fortune, $300,000, sank under the waves. Later on in reflection, he realized the money was a mockery to me. It was laughing at me. Lest reflection be forced upon us, the need for reflection, you know, even one of us here recently having a right arm in a sling, not even being able to, I mean, I wonder what, what that does. I can't even imagine for myself if, if, if it was an arm or sight or anything. And the need for reflection in our own lives. So, have I had time to reflect? And the need for the, need for the seventh day. We wrap up here with Hebrews chapter 4 verse 7. He again fixes a certain day, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, so now he's talking about the promised land again, but if Joshua gave them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. He would not have spoken about another day. And so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'm rounding the bases now, 
and we're coming back home, and the Cubs win, the Cubs win. There remains a Sabbath rest. Here's where Sabbath finally kind of culminates in its final development. What he's saying, the author is, is that there's another day. There's another day. What other day are we talking about? What is this other day? Uh, talking with my friend, my Jewish friend, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were just having a conversation one Sunday afternoon. He knows that I observe my day off Sunday afternoon and Monday. And so he said to me as at the close of our conversation, he said, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. To which I responded, the only Hebrew I could think of at the moment was Mazel Tov. That's pretty open-minded for a Jewish person to say to me, who's observing my day off on Monday, to say Shabbat Shalom. For them, it's sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So what is this other day? Is it Sunday? That's not the answer. Is it Monday? Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What is this other day? What is the other day? What is this third and last day? idea of Sabbath that he's talking about. Does anybody know? It's there in the passage. Nobody knows. Sorry. That's a good, that's a good stab, but the answer is actually right there in verse 7. Which day is this new day that the author is talking about today. Today. Do you see how subtle and yet how awesome this is? This is no longer about a perfect 24-hour period. The Jews, they've got a corner on Sabbath. They observe it perfectly. But the Christians... We are the ones that have to get Sabbath better than anybody else. We have to be the most relaxed, the most stress-free. We have to have the best blood pressure. The idea is for Christians, Sabbath is today. Your faith in Jesus transforms your psyche. It gives you such a sense, I'm not in control. God's got this. There's such a confidence in the blood that we can say every single day is a Sabbath. No longer is it just about a perfectly observed 24-hour period. Now, mind you, we need that. You need that. If you don't have one 24-hour period to reflect, like I said, it will be forced back upon us. But the Christian, the fullest, this final evolution of Sabbath is about every day. It's about today. It's about living, you know what, with a keel on the bottom of your ship, a very strong keel. Do you know what a keel is? A keel is that thing, you can see it on the bottom of your notes. A keel is this long protuberance, whatever, this long thing on the bottom of your ship, on the bottom of a boat, that no matter what the winds and the waves do to your boat, as your boat is doing this or this, it will never flip over. Why? Because you have a keel that is strong and that will always upright your boat to level center. Do you hear what I'm saying? Christ is our Sabbath. 
Christ is our keel. He is the one that always writes us when the winds of life do this. Tomorrow morning, you're going to, I'm sorry, but some of you are going to get bad news. Your boss is going to say something. Something will happen. Even recently, my mother-in-law got a, you know, uh, is that public yet? Kind of is. You know, and there was a surgery that, that uh, you know, that took place. Things like that will interrupt our lives. Things will happen to us. And as we face these things head on, what is that that will write us once again? But this notion of the Sabbath, of Jesus as Sabbath every day, today, I close, I close with these words from Arthur Miller who wrote a play called After the Fall. After the Fall, Arthur Miller described this state of restlessness and anxiety. He talks about how for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart you are, what a good lover, what a good father. Finally, how wise or how powerful or whatever. And I understand this. There's a sense when we were young, we try to prove. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves. We're on this upward track trying to prove, trying to prove. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. The presumption was that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or maybe condemned. Anyway, a verdict. And I think now my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight, and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. In other words, despair. Friends, are you constantly proving yourself or living to somehow justify why you breathe air? Are you constantly in this place of restlessness, forever barred from your promised land, kept out because there's this thing hanging over your head, I have to prove somebody, mom, dad, the authorities, the boss, where you're living for the man. I want to invite you at this time to close your eyes and to reflect perhaps on this image of the keel, the bottom of the ship, perhaps on the circumstances in your life, things that are going on right now that are causing your ship to rock side by side violently. On whom have you placed your trust? That reflection, have I had time? Have I had time to reflect? Use this moment now to reflect.
today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For while it is still called today, encourage one another. Encourage one another. So, Lord, we come before you now in a period of reflection, in a period of thoughtfulness as we reflect on the other six days. Cast out worry, cast out despair, cast out anxiety. Help us not to reflect on those things, but help us now, Lord, to reflect on your purposes for us. Help us to reflect on the next right thing that we are to do. Help us to reflect on what faithfulness looks like. And Lord, we cast ourselves upon you at this time. Thank you for this moment of reflection on this Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.